Well, we are going to go ahead and finish up the book of 2 Corinthians today. This has been 16 weeks we've been going through this, and, uh, which is actually pretty good. When we did 1 Corinthians, I think that took us 26 weeks or something like that to get through that one. But uh, <clears throat> we're going to go ahead and wrap it up today, and we're going to get through all of chapter 13. How many know that sometimes real love demands confrontation? You know, that's one of the things that uh, has always been interesting to me is this idea of tough love. And some of you guys have heard me say this before. Matter of fact, I've actually been chastised for saying this because uh, somebody thought I was being offensive to the man who used to use it regularly. Apparently there was a, a Christian pastor that, that uh, and I forget his name, but he used to use this idea of tough love quite regularly. And somebody thought I was, I was insulting him by saying this. But the truth is, I, I don't know who the man was or much about his teaching, but the reality is, is I don't like the term tough love because I don't think there's a such thing as tough love I think it's just love I think when you love somebody sometimes you have to make the choice to confront them in certain things sometimes you have to take a stand and we're going to see that with Paul today because Paul has spent um, the, the majority of this letter and truthfully a lot of his last letter that he wrote to the to the Corinthian church he was defending himself against accusations both from the false teachers and apostles that were showing up, but really he was having to defend himself even to his own congregation. And that's what he spent most of the letter doing. But as he ends this letter, and you saw it a little bit last week as well, but Paul's beginning to turn it, and he's going to be, a, to be more aggressive with them. He's going to call them to task. He's going to begin to confront the Corinthian church. And it's not because he doesn't love them, but it's because he does love them. Because Sometimes love requires confrontation. Paul is going to remind them that everything that they're doing and everything that they have done is actually being done in, in, in the sight of God. And the truth is, is that one day we're all going to stand in front of God and give an account for all of our actions. God is our judge. And Paul wants to say, listen, if you won't listen to me, if you won't be obedient to me, if you won't hear what I'm teaching you, remember that you should at least examine yourselves to ensure that you are in Christ. Because that's the, the reality. One day we'll all stand in front of God. If you're not a believer, that's the question that's asked. Are you born again or you're not? If you've not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you stand condemned. You stand judged. And then if you have been born again, you're going to have to give an account for what you have done with your life. You're not going to give an account for sin because that's been dealt with. But I do believe we'll be giving an account of what did we do with what we did have. Paul says, if you won't listen to me, at least examine yourselves. Make sure that you are in Christ, in Christ, in you. Because here's the thing about Paul. His ultimate concern is and always has been the Corinthians' well-being, their spiritual well-being. He's always cared about them. Everything that he's going through, whether it's defending himself, it's not about defending him, it's about making sure that they don't get swept away by false teaching. And when he's going to confront them and challenge them, it's not about him, it's about making sure that they're the way they need to be. Paul genuinely loves the people that he ministers to and the churches that he planted. So we get started in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. It says, This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Paul wrote this letter 
in preparation for his upcoming third visit. And we talked about this a little bit uh, two weeks ago, but his first visit was actually to plant the church. He spent about a year and a half with them. He planted the church. He got things going. He ministered the gospel to them, and he, he actually got them started on their walk, their journey with Christ. Now, the second visit was after he wrote the first letter. You remember the first letter was, uh, was really uh, him dealing with some of the sin and some of the division and disunity that was going on in the church. And after he sent that letter, he actually made a visit down there to follow up. And this is the, the, the visit that he refers to in, in chapter 2 of this letter is the painful visit. Because things didn't really go well. You see, that's the, the problem. Sometimes love requires confrontation, but if people on the other end aren't teachable, they're not coachable, it just gets ugly really fast. So he says that this was the, the painful visit. He visited because the church was a mess. They were living in sin. But it just didn't go well. And then Paul had warned them about the consequences of sin. And he does so, if you think about it, he warned them in, in the first letter. He's been warning them in this letter. Paul's constantly trying to get them on the right path. But now he's about ready to make a third trip. And he says this, he says, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Paul is actually quoting from Deuteronomy 19.15 here. It's kind of an abbreviated quote from 19.15, Deuteronomy 19.15. But the reason behind this law, this idea of every charge must be established by two or three witnesses was, was this. And it's kind of like what we see in, in the American law system as well. It's far better for... Uh, a guilty person to go unpunished than it is for an innocent person to be punished unjustly. And that's the idea behind this, this two or three witnesses. It saves people from, from reckless charges. It saves people from having their lives ruined just by a single accusation, which was the purpose of this. But I also think that Paul is throwing this in here right now because he wants to let them know that he intends to deal with the sin and the ungodliness that is happening in the Corinthian church at this point in time. You see, the thing is, is that the sin that's going on right now, the ungodliness that's going on, is not only being perpetrated by the church, but we've seen from the first and, and, and probably some of this letter that it's being tolerated as well, which is an issue as well. So Paul says, he's basically giving them the hint by telling them this, that this is stuff that's going to be dealt with when I get down there. And we're gonna, but we're going to do things the right way. It's going to be done in order. How many of the God's a God of order? He wants things done a certain way. He wants them done. Uh, and really, this kind of stuff is to protect people. The reason God gave these laws was to protect people. You know, it's interesting when we read the, the law of God in, in the Old Testament, and I recognize that we're not under the law, but the reality is, is that God is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. So if he put these things, the, these ideas forth back then, it's not that, that after, after Christ came into the picture, this stuff just goes away. You know, the Ten Commandments, all of that stuff is still sin, even though Jesus has come and we're not under the law anymore. That stuff is still sin because God is the same. But we read all this stuff and, and, and many of these things, like we all uh, are under, in agreement um, even even the, the non-Christian world is in agreement that, that uh, murder is wrong. We all agree on that. But there's other stuff like sexual sin that people get involved in, and we don't all agree that that's wrong 
in the Christian world and the non-Christian world. We, we don't agree with that because sometimes people think that God is, is this, this, this big man in the sky that just wants to ruin your fun. He just wants to take stuff away from you. But the reality is, is the reason God enacted these laws was in order for us to be protected. The reason why God doesn't want you to have premarital sex is not because he wants to steal your fun. It's because the reality is, is that, that, that sex is a spiritual thing. And it can actually hurt you. It can damage you to live in that way. It is not good for you. So he isn't trying to steal your fun. He's trying to keep you safe. And the same is true with all these laws, all these things that were happening. You would be shocked if you go through through many of the laws that that seem kind of strange, but what actually would have protected the people. Like not getting tattoos, that seems like a weird one. But that was, that was more specific to the time because guess what happens when you get tattoos in a time like that where there's no sanitation and there's no any of that stuff? The opportunity for sickness and infection is, is crazy. The reality is, is that, that, that God's a little bit smarter than, than I think many people want to give him credit for, which is strange because he's God. We shouldn't have to worry about that. So Paul's going to deal with some stuff. But he wants to do it the right way. He wants to do it in order. And in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, Jesus said it like this. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Evidence of two or three witnesses. Take one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You know, when I, I read this stuff and I start thinking about it, I'm like, man, how much simpler, not simpler, how, how many problems that we deal with in the church would go away if we would just follow the advice that we find in the Bible? If we would just follow Jesus' advice. How many times have we been sinned against or have we been offended that we hold on to it and let it fester instead of dealing with the issue by going to our brother or our sister that maybe offended us? You see, the teachings that we find in the Bible aren't just good ideas. They're not just great wise sayings that we should embroider on pillows. But they make an impact. You know, one of the things that that uh, Michelle and I struggled with really early on in our marriage was how we, we dealt with conflict, which was both very different. And, uh, you know, and this is something that we share with, with couples in marriage counseling, so it's not something that we terribly try to hide, so I hope she's okay with me sharing this. But, but uh, uh, she, especially in the beginning of our marriage, I, I, when something happened, I wanted to talk about it, I wanted to deal with it. Except for I took that too far. Like I was just hammering. Let's deal with it. Hammer, hammer, hammer. And it pushed her away. But her idea was, no, if we just ignore it, if we just tuck it away, we can forget about it and it'll go away. And in the short term, that seems to work. In the short term, that seems to make sense. You just tuck it away. You, you push it away. You forget about it. But the problem is, is that it builds up and it festers. And then what happens is something small blows up like a piece of laundry missed the laundry basket and the next thing you know we're in just a knockdown drag out fight and i'm like it's a sock (laughs) 
But it's not just a sock. It's something that wasn't dealt with. You know, so, but in the church this happens too. How many things could we have just dealt with when it was small? If you, if you feel like you've been sinned against, if, if, you, if you've been offended, go talk to the person and get it over with and deal with it. The thing is, is the Bible teaches us the proper way to deal with all of these things. And we don't want to let potentially small things grow into very large things because they so easily do that. If someone sins against you, go to them and try to work it out. And if, if they're resistant, if they don't want to work it out, if they're, they're belligerent, the Bible gives the next steps as well. Then you bring others who are, evident, who are witnesses of this, this sin, whatever it is, and you try to get it dealt with then. If not, you bring it to the church. You bring it to the pastors. You bring it to the church. And then ultimately, the, the, the farthest step along the line is, is, is that basically they're, they're, they're not allowed in the church. If it's not resolved, we get instructions on how to escalate this stuff. Now, I thank God that I haven't had to deal with that. You know, I, I think of the idea of asking somebody to leave the church because they just refuse to, to, to deal with sin in their life like that. That's heartbreaking to me. And I'm think, thankful that I've never had to deal with that. But the truth is, is that we are given instructions with how to deal with all of these things. And here's the thing. How many of you guys have been in a family? Yeah, that's kind of my nature of being born, right? How many know that, that families are hard? How many know that in families, stuff happens? How many know the church is a family? Sometimes stuff happens. We hurt one another without intending to. And we're all going to let one another down from time to time. It's one of the things I actually try to say up here quite regularly because the truth is, is the only person that's not going to let you down is Jesus. Every single one of us in this room will let one another down. So the, the question is, how do we deal with it? And I would encourage you, let's, let's deal with it in a biblical way. Amen? So Paul continues in verses 2 through 3. He says, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. You see, now the, the time for, for waiting for it to pass is gone, and now Paul has to deal with the situation. And dealing with the situation, you know, Paul's reminding them that, that look, guys, this isn't a surprise. I'm not going to sneak up on you down there and just start, start browbeating you guys. Like, I've warned you in the first and the second letter. When I was down there, I warned you that if this stuff doesn't get dealt with, uh, dealt with, then I'm not going to spare you. Because here's the thing is that Paul had hoped that his, his, this letter and the last letter and even his visit would have spurred some change inside of them. He hoped that there would be that there would be a change. He hoped that, that, that he wouldn't have to come down there and exercise his authority. And the truth is, we know from the letters to some degree that there has been change happening, right? You remember the, the, the man that they talked about in chapter 2, verse 5, where he was being disciplined by the church members, and Paul asked them to forgive him. He says, forgive him and comfort him so that he's not overwhelmed by sorrow and grief. Did you know that that's the goal of all discipline, is restoration? 
That is the purpose of it all, is to restore people. It's not to, to make them feel bad. It's not to condemn them. It's not to tell them that they're never going to measure up or they're never going to, to be good enough. The whole purpose of all discipline is to restore people. To get them to repent. But it seems that there were still some in the Corinthian church that haven't repented. They were still living in sin. And, not only, and that's the thing. How many know there's a difference between falling, slipping up, and intentionally living in sin. You see, there are times that, that, that we struggle with things and we fall, we, 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 we sin. As long as you get back up, you're on the right track. Even if it happens regularly, if you are genuinely repenting and you're getting back up and you're growing, then, then that's the right track. That's not what Paul's talking about here. But the, the stuff that Paul is dealing with is, are people that are intentionally living in sin. They've made the decision to continue to do this. They've not repented, and Paul's already warned them that they need to repent. He warned them on that first visit, that, that, that second visit, he warned them in the letters, and here's the thing. If they don't repent, he's not going to spare them when he returns. You know, as a pastor, this is one of the hardest things for me to navigate as a pastor if I'm being honest with you, some inside baseball here. When do I teach? When do I encourage? And when do I draw the line and have to actually enact discipline? Because you don't want to just go straight to, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We, uh, we want to encourage and help people. And, and it's something that truthfully... Almost keeps me up at night when I think about stuff that happens, stuff that has to be dealt with. You know, it almost makes you sick to your stomach sometimes when you don't know the right thing to do and you just want to do it in a godly way with the goal of, of, re of restoring people. And I've been so fortunate in my ministry so far that, that truthfully, for the most part, once I speak to people, that, that usually takes care of it. I've been so fortunate and things get dealt with and, and, and really the only other thing that's ever happened is I, I've spoken to people and they've chosen to leave instead of stay so I've not had to take any further but I'm thankful that, that I've never had to, to be a, that aggressive with people because that, if I'm being honest, like it, it breaks my heart to even have to think about doing that. Because like Paul, my goal is always for people to grow. My, my goal is for them to get closer to God. My goal is for them to be uh, the, the best and most mature men and women of God that they can be. And, and my purpose as a pastor is to help guide people down that path. And it's so much better when people respond to teaching and encouragement than discipline. But I can tell you this. For every single Christian that hears this, the most important thing that you can do in your walk with God is be teachable, is be coachable. And I don't mean just you, I mean for me too. I have a pastor. I have people that speak into my life. And I've been coached and I've been encouraged and I've been rebuked. <laughs> but the number one thing that you can do is be teachable, is be coachable. And that's how you move forward. And I think that that's what Paul was wanting for these people is for them to be teachable and coachable and to move forward from there 
But the problem is, is it didn't stop there. He's got to go down there, and now he's got to address and deal with this stuff. And I, I think, like, I, I think Paul kind of loathed to do this. This wasn't his idea of a good time either, much like it's not my idea of a good time. But like Paul, I am prepared to do it if necessary. And obviously, Paul was prepared as well. Paul recognized that they had arisen for this church. And all the while, the Corinthians, because of the divisive words of the apostles, the false apostles, the false teachers, um, and of his rivals, they've considered him weak. That's one of the things that he was having to, to defend against was people saying that he was weak. He says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me and he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. They thought Paul was weak and he was going to have to come down because it's unfortunate that they mistook his patience and his love for weakness. But now he's going to have to come down there and show them that he is not weak because Christ isn't weak. And Paul and, and Christ both, if you think about it, according to the world, they both looked weak. I mean, Jesus, uh, w- when, when they were sending him to the cross, they were mocking him. They were teasing him. He looked weak. Paul, when he's out there and he's ministering the gospel, he's getting beaten, persecuted, shipwrecked, um, torn apart by both uh, so-called Christian brothers as well as governments. I mean, everybody's against him. He looked weak. But the truth is, is they were both strong in the Lord. The world thought they were weak, but God called them strong. And now Paul was going to have to come down and, and essentially judge the Corinthian church in the power of Christ. And they were now going to experience the strength that they've been apparently so eager to experience from him. But it wasn't going to be how they expected. They wanted strength and and in his appearance and his looks and how he was speaking in signs and wonders and miracles, but now they were going to see it in judgment and discipline. And he continues on in verse 4, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we are also weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. You know, I think about this, and, and in hindsight, we look back. You know, we, we get the... We get the whole picture when we read the Bible. We know the end of not only the, the, the end of, of how the world ends in the book of, of Revelation, but we, we see the end of, of every person's dealing. We see the end of, of what happens with Paul and what he accomplishes. And we see all that, and we're like, how could you think he was weak? I mean, look what he did. But the truth is, is that from a worldly perspective, he was weak. And, and we look at Jesus, and we're like, you guys are crazy. He wasn't weak like but from a worldly perspective, he looked weak. He was, he was captured. He was beaten. He was crucified. He was killed. And it's interesting that they thought Paul was weak. And they thought Jesus was weak. But did you know that's actually kind of what Paul taught anyway? In, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, For the word of cross is folly. Other translations say the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The truth is, the world always thinks the cross is weak. The cross is foolishness. That's what they think while they're perishing. 
But it was in this very weakness that the power of God was demonstrated in such a way that it can't even be, it, it, it can't even come into question. First, God overturned the result of this, so, of, of this worldly weakness, right? Because Jesus is no longer dead. He rose again. He is alive. Not only that, he wasn't even damaged in any way. Sure, from the outside looking in, it looked like that, 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 that he was going down, that he was showing weakness, he was being beaten, and he, he was killed. But the reality was that he was completely victorious in every single way. He didn't stay dead. And then second, the devil and all the enemies in opposition to Jesus, they thought that they were victorious when they killed Jesus. I mean, I wonder what was going through the devil's head when he's like, huh, I thought this would be harder, but we got it. We killed him. He's dead. Like we won. But the reality was is that he was just playing into God's hands. God used the very thing that, that they thought was showing Christ's weaknesses. They were showing that he was, in, he was, he was fallible, that he, he could die, that he was weak, that he wasn't strong. He wasn't going to be victorious. God used those very things to, to demonstrate his power and to make Christ victorious. God used the very thing that they believed that gave them victory to give us victory. The death and torture of Jesus Christ wasn't weakness, but it was the solution for the pain and suffering that we should have felt for our sin. His death wasn't the devil getting victory, but it was actually the solution for our problem of sin. And then when he rose again, not only do we have sin dealt with, not only did the debt get paid, but when he rose again, we rose again in newness of life with him. So not only forgiving us of our sins, because that's necessary and a good thing, but he also dealt with the problem of sin. You see, the, the, the law, when they sacrificed the blood of bulls and goats, that forgave sin for a time. But the problem is people would keep on sinning. They were still in bondage to sin. So there was always more sins to be forgiven. But in Jesus, it was done once. And then we got a new life inside of us. We're no longer in subjection to the bondage of sin and death. We're no longer who we used to be. The old man is dead and gone, and we're a brand new man. A brand new life inside of us. The very thing, the very weakness that the world saw, that the devil saw, the victory that they thought he had, God said, yeah, no, I'm going to use that for me instead. And we saw victory. The thing is, is that Paul uses, or God uses what the world considers weak to demonstrate his power. And the truth is, he did that in Paul too. Paul looked weak. Matter of fact, Paul bragged about his weaknesses because Paul's a terrible bragger. So he started bragging about all his, his weaknesses and how he was beaten and he was stoned and he was endured hardship and all these things. But in that, that very thing that the world would consider a weakness, God demonstrated power by by using Paul to share the gospel and ultimately write two-thirds of the New Testament for us to, to learn and, and to grow from. And the thing here is what this really does is it shows a stark contrast to what the Corinthians view as power and what God views as power, what Paul views as power and the way the false apostles viewed power. You see, the, the Corinthians and these false apostles, they understood power as something that was exerted that it was assertive that it was domineering it was forceful personalities this is what power looks like 
And you can't blame them in many ways. I mean, look at the people that were in authority. You got the Roman authorities. I mean, even look at the, the Roman and the Greek gods that, they had, that the man had created. Look what they considered power to look like. It was always boisterous and tyrannical personalities that demonstrated what they considered as power. They had a completely different understanding of what power was than what Paul did. So Paul reminds them that actually the mighty power of God is demonstrated in weakness and not through just might and personalities. Christ's own life was a testimony to this fact. As I talked about last week, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, started as one of the weakest organisms, a human baby, that exists. I mean, uh, a horse has a, has a baby and it's of walking within minutes. A human has a baby and it's not walking for years. It can't feed itself for years. It can't do anything for years. But God's power is demonstrated in weakness. And through Christ's death on the cross, salvation and victory was provided for all who believe in his name. And the reality is, is that true power is demonstrated in following and in imitating Jesus. That's exactly what Paul did. So in verses 5 through 6, he begins to, to, to push back. He says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you failed to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. So far, the Corinthian church has been testing and examining Paul. They've been throwing accusations at Paul under the influence of the false teachers and the apostles. They've now got their minds swayed by these people, and they've been examining Paul, trying to point out how he was weak, how he wasn't a true apostle and all these things. But Paul, over the last couple of letters, has withstood their examination, and he's, he's made his case in his, in his letters, and he's, he's demonstrated that what they considered weak was not actually weakness, but it was Christ's power demonstrated in him. So now, since Paul has withstood their examination, now he wants them to examine themselves to see if, they, if their faith was genuine. Would they pass their own examination? And what's interesting about this test, he says, test yourselves, is I think many people misunderstand this test. I think many of us, we read this and we think, oh, we're looking at our actions. We're looking at the things that we're doing. You know, what we're testing is, are, are, we, are we fulfilling the heavenly checklist? Did I go to church? Did I pray? Did I do this? Did I do that? And that's not what Paul's telling you to examine. He's not telling you to examine your life to make sure that you're doing everything right. What he's saying is examine, do you have Christ in you? And it's strange that, we, that people misunderstand this because it kind of flat out says it. Do you not realize this about yourself? Jesus Christ is in you unless you indeed fail to meet the test. What's the test? Is Jesus Christ in you? That's what we're looking to determine. That's what he's saying and examine yourself. Is Jesus in you? Are you in Jesus? Or is he not? That's the test that he wants them to, to perform on themselves. Now, it's not that examining your actions doesn't have any benefit. Because here's the thing, that if you are living in sin intentionally, 
if you are choosing to live in sin, then it's quite possible that Christ is not in you. Because anybody that has Christ in them is not going to intentionally choose to live in sin. And I want to make it clear, I'm not talking about a failing. I'm not talking about making a mistake. I'm not talking about a falling. The Bible says the righteous man falls seven times and gets back up seven times. So that means a righteous man can fall, right? It wouldn't say the righteous man falls if righteous men don't fall. But to stay righteous, you just get back up. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people that claim to be Christians but are intentionally living in sin. If that is you, then you might want to question, are you really in Christ? The truth is, is if you're intentionally living in sin, if you're choosing to live in sin, it's likely that that he's not. So examine yourself. Is that you? Or, if you're certain that you are in Christ, but you're still living that way, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What Paul is saying in this section is that, look, if you're doing these things, that's not who you are anymore. He says, such were some of you but you were washed, you were cleansed, you are in Christ. So if you examine yourselves and you see that you are in Christ, that should impact and influence your actions. The truth is, is if you have a saving faith, things change. You're not who you used to be anymore. So if you're still doing some of the things that you used to do before you were saved... Paul saying here, this isn't who you are anymore. This is who you were, but you know that these people don't enter the kingdom of heaven. But you are a people who enter the kingdom of heaven because you're saved. But people that do these things don't enter the kingdom of heaven. But you are a people who enter the kingdom of heaven because you're saved. So, don't do these things. Because that's not who you are. Amen? So Paul says to test yourself. And if the Corinthians couldn't find evidence that Jesus Christ was among them, then they would fail the test. Then he says that he hopes that they would find out that him and those who were working with him, that they had not failed the test either. You see, Paul had founded this church. It's actually kind of absurd to think that the founder of this church would fail this test. But here Paul reminds them that their Christian faith was actually the result of his ministry. And if you think about it, as a result, he would have passed the test as well. They should have known that he had passed the test and was approved by God. And then verses 7 through 8, he goes on, he says, But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Because here's the thing. Even though Paul wanted them to see that they had not failed the test, that wasn't his primary concern. He thinks that they should have been able to see that, but that's actually not what Paul was concerned about at all. 
The reality is, is Paul knew that he had passed the test. He didn't need the Corinthians' approval. He didn't need the Corinthians to believe that he had passed the test to know that he had passed the test. Paul knew who he was, and he was firm, and, and he was confident in his standing before God. But Paul is concerned with them. That's always been his primary concern. So Paul does what he always does. He prays for the people that he cares about and that he loves. Even though they had caused him so much trouble and grief, Paul never stopped praying for them. And he prayed that might, God might give them wisdom and he might give them the power to do what was right. But here's the thing. He wasn't praying for their success in order that he would be proven right. He wasn't praying for their success in order to make sure that he looked good because if they looked bad, then Paul would look bad. If they looked good, Paul would look good. Paul doesn't care about that. Matter of fact, it doesn't take that much just reading his letters to understand he doesn't care about that. He always cares about them. He was willing to belittle himself and talk about his weakness in order to reach them. He was willing to do stuff that, that he thought was crazy, bragging about himself in order to reach them. Everything that Paul did was in order to reach them because his only care was that they would be successful. So he's not praying for their success. That's what he says. Not that we may appear to meet the test, but just so that you do what was right. Matter of fact, he says, we would rather you do what was right even if we seem to have failed. He would prefer that he looks like a failure as long as that they were not. That they were, were, were maintaining their faith in Christ. That they were living a devoted life to Christ. He would prefer that because his passing or failing the test is not the issue. He, just, he doesn't want them to get the wrong idea, the wrong impression that that's what he's fishing for. But really, he wants them to succeed. To succeed. His goal as an apostle was never to set himself on a pedestal, to lift himself up, but it was always for others to know Christ and to present others to Christ as worthy. And his prayer is that the Corinthians would do right even if it means that he looks like a failure. Because just as Christ was willing to suffer insults and beating and hardships and failure and even die on the cross to serve all of humanity, Paul was willing to become an, a failure in order to serve the Corinthian church. Paul imitated Christ in everything that he did. Now, it's not to say that Paul thought he was going to somehow give his life to save the Corinthian church, but he was willing to suffer to do anything for them because Christ was willing to suffer for all of us. And then he starts talking about the truth. He says, we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. How many know this about truth? There's only one truth. Truth is not subjective. By definition, truth is objective. There is only one truth. You can't have your truth and me have my truth. Truth is truth. There is only truth. And what Paul's saying here is that, listen, church, the Corinthian church, I can't change the truth even if you don't like it. Paul is not going to tamper with the truth to make things easier for himself. Nor will he tamper with the truth to make it easier for his congregations. In an effort to please them, he's not going to change who he is as an apostle nor how he teaches and preaches, even if those things demonstrate his weaknesses. And he is also not going to change the truth to excuse the Corinthian sins and errors. The truth is, is that I think we're seeing too much of that in, in progressive, progressive churches right now. Excusing sin. And when I say by we're, we're seeing 
too much of it. Uh, any of it is too much. We're not, we're, it's not okay to alter the word of God. It's not okay to change it to make fe- people feel better, to make sure that people aren't offended. The word of God is the word of God. The truth is the truth no matter how we feel about it. No matter what society feels about it. It's the truth. And that's all there is to it. And the reality is, is that true apostles, and the truth is, true Christians, are controlled and submitted to the truth in the Word of God, and they're not preoccupied with themselves. Amen? In verses 9-10 through he says, For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority, but the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Once again, Paul's concern was always for the Corinthian church. He was willing to endure hardship, suffering, torture, pain, hunger, insult, persecution, shipwrecks, uh, submitting to the weather, dealing with, with the weather. He was exposure, all of those things. He was even willing to, uh, to do all these things that demonstrated weakness in order that the Corinthians might be strong. That's what he says here. He says, look, we're glad when we're weak and you're strong. Because that's what our goal was, our purpose for. Because his concern was the, re- the, the restoration of the Corinthian people in their response to the gospel. In order that they would be strong putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And he wants them to live completely devoted to Jesus with with lives that demonstrate a changed heart and a new spirit inside of them. And while he hopes and he prays that these things are fulfilled, and he hopes and prays that the Corinthians will respond to his letters and to his instructions when he visited them, He does want them to know that the warning still stands from verses 2 and 3 of this chapter. He says, look, I write you these things when I'm away with you that I might not have to come and be severe. But he is willing to. He is willing to come down. Because the truth is, is that I think any leader, we never want to have to be severe. We never want to have to exercise our authority in that manner. And Paul certainly did not want to. He would prefer to use his authority for building up the church, for encouraging the church, instead of in discipline and and authority. And I completely understand that. He would much rather use his gifts and his talents to grow the church and build it, rather than have to to rebuke it. Amen? And uh, we'll finish up here, verses 11 through 14. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So as is kind of the the common thing for Paul as he ends all his letters with a list of exhortations for the people that he's speaking to. And the first thing that he exhorts them to do is to rejoice. It's interesting that he would say rejoice after the letters that we've read <laughs> that he wrote to the Corinthian church. It seems like that, that there might not be too many things to rejoice over if things are going that badly. 
But the reality is, is Christian joy is never ruled by our circumstances. But instead, our joy is instilled in us through the reality of Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished inside of each and every one of us. It doesn't matter how bad things are going around us, we can still rejoice, amen? So he says, rejoice. But the thing is, in order for them to do so, they are going to have to aim for restoration. He says, look, rejoice, but aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. You know, as an aside, the best way to live in agreement is to uphold the Word of God. If everybody reads the Word of God and, and applies that in their life, then, then we're going to have the same ideals. We're going to have the same convictions. And we'll be able to have agreement in those areas of our life. Finally, he asked them to live in peace. Basically, he wants them to, to unite under God and live together under the God of love and peace. He's encouraging them to unite. That's a theme in all Paul's letters to the churches as well, is, is unity is important. Us being unified under one God, one Jesus. And then he gives them an interesting instruction. He says, at least from, from my perspective, and probably some of our, all of us in the United States perspective, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I was doing some, some reading on the commentaries on this, and the truth is, is, is nobody really knows exactly what this holy kiss was. I remember a story from my pastor told me that he was in Africa, <laughs> And he was ministering to the, to, uh, I forget where he, which, which country he was in in Africa, but it, the, one of the, the guys there was a, was a very large black man, and he walks to the door, and the guy walks up to him, gives him a big hug, and just plants a kiss right on his lips. <laughs> and, and that was their idea of a holy kiss. And, uh, but I don't think, yeah, I, would, I think I would, I would be caught off guard had that happened to me, and as, as was he. But... Uh, we don't really know exactly what this holy kiss was, but I, I want to read to you from the New, Amer New American Commentary because I think it, uh, it does a good job talking about it. It says, a, this, uh, a kiss appears in the New Testament as a sign of respect and greeting, of love and reverence, and of reconciliation and family fellowship. We find a parting kiss in Acts 20.37, but a holy kiss represents something more than a social custom. It is a sign of mutual fellowship among persons of mixed social background, nationality, race, and gender who are joined together as a new family in Christ. The holy kiss becomes a token of the joy, love, reconciliation, peace, and communion that, Christ know, that, that Christians know in Christ and with one another. So what it's saying here, this is what it's talking about is just not the, you know, a cultural kiss. It's not like you know, in, in France when they go and they kiss each other on the cheeks or in Italy or something like that. It's not a cultural thing. This was uniquely Christian. And when I, I think about it for me and, and how that plays out in my life, it's something that, that you guys have probably all heard from me say to you at one point or another when I just tell you that I love you. Now, I remember the first time another man said that to me. I was I was uncomfortable. Uh, I just started coming to the church and my pastor was telling me that he loved me. And I'm like, man, this is weird. Because it's not something that we do in our culture. It's not something that we see regularly. It's not something that, 
But it was the culture in that church, as we told one another, because that's what it was. We were, we were a family. We were united under one God and that reconciliation under the Holy Spirit and fellowship with one another. And even though it caught me off guard, I grew to love it. And now you guys will hear me say it to you all the time. And talking to, to particularly the, the, the men, uh, they felt uncomfortable with it at first. But now they do it too. And I don't know if it's exactly the same thing, but that's what runs through my head when I think about this idea of the holy kiss. That's something that I, that I do specifically with my church family. And I want you guys to know that I, that I love you, that you, that you mean something to me, that we are a family. Amen? And then finally he ends in verse 14, which is something that I think we should all be praying for one another. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. If you ever wonder how to pray for people, the best way is just to read the Bible. You'll see prayers in the Bible over and over and over again. And you know what? It's not cheating if you just repeat them. Matter of fact, that's the best way you can pray and know that you're praying in the will of God because it's His Word that you're praying over people. Amen? Amen. Well, I think as we've gone through these letters of Paul to the Corinthians and, and this one in particular, we, there's a lot of things that we can learn. We're able to see things from the perspective of a leader who's interacting with his congregation, his church, dealing with both encouragement and teaching, but also in, 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 in how we're to, to deal with discipline in the church. We can also see in the, in the Corinthians' lives and how they're living their lives, areas, then maybe we need to correct in our own lives. And we can see the importance of being teachable and correctable. See, here's the thing is, I think we certainly want to avoid the problems that the Corinthian church had. And we can learn by reading these letters that, that the way we can avoid these things is one, by supporting and standing by our leaders. And that doesn't just mean you to me. But there's other leaders in this church that need supported. And it's an instruction for me as I support my leaders and those who sit over in authority over me. Amen. So we should be defending and praying and supporting our leaders. We also need to make sure that we're guarding our hearts from division, false teaching, and all those things that try to come in and, and, and tear the church apart from within. And then also that we should all be aiming for restoration in our lives and in the lives of those that we love. Living united under one God, the God of peace and love. So, church, let's ensure that we're a church that avoids these mistakes. Let's look at the Word of God and understand it's there for our teaching and our correction so we don't fall into the same traps. Let's choose to not make these mistakes, but rather... Be a church that embodies love, holiness, and unity. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads. Hallelujah. As we close the service, I just want to ensure that, that uh, not only those who are in here today, but anybody that's listening online right now, that you have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. Because here's the thing. God loves you more than you could ever imagine. It doesn't matter if you have any 
failures in your life. It doesn't matter what sin you have in your life. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you haven't done. None of these things matter. But the reality is, is that he loves you more than you can ever imagine. But there is also a reality is that our sin separates us from God. The Bible says that, that, uh, that God is light and in him there is no darkness. And here's the reality is that darkness cannot have fellowship with the light. The, the, the sins in our lives, those things that cause us to fall short of the glory of God actually separates us from God. And there's nothing that we can do about it. We can't live good enough. We can't make amends on our own. But thanks be to God that He made a way for us. That He made a way so that we could be right with Him. And He did so by sending His Son. Because He loved you so much and He wanted nothing more to be in a relationship with you. He wanted nothing more than for you to be right with Him. He sent His Son to give His life on the cross. To pay the penalty for the, for the, the sin in our lives. He died the death that we should have died. He suffered the punishment that we should have suffered. And in doing so, he wiped our slate clean. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we put our trust in him, and the Bible says that to do so, that you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and you confess with your mouth, when you do those things, and you put your trust in Jesus, then your past is wiped away. Your sins and your failures are wiped away. And you are made brand new. You're given a brand new life. And you simply have to accept that free gift, putting your trust in Jesus, calling Him your Lord and Savior. So if there's anybody here this morning in this room that has not received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I'd just like you to go ahead and raise your hand because that's part of it. You have to confess with your mouth. And the next you believe in your heart. So I want to pray with you if there's anybody in here. If you're listening online and, and, and this is the, the first time you're hearing this or you today decided that you're going to make a decision to give your life to Christ, to accept Him as your Lord and Savior, then go ahead and put a comment in the chat or go ahead and send me an email or give me a call. You can find my email and phone number on our website, uh, marana.church, and reach out to me because I'd love to pray for you. And uh, the reality is, is that God loves you. Don't, don't, hold back on this opportunity don't let shame embarrassment or anything cause you to hold back you never know how long you have to make this decision and the truth is none of us know that we have tomorrow but you have now to say yes to jesus hallelujah let's go ahead and stand to our feet